0: Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Blair Lemke. It's a privilege to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you Um, I need. I want to start uh, our message off again with a quick word of prayer. So, if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads, we'll have a word of prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege that we have to be here this morning. I want to thank you for your word. Uh, we've reflected all weekend the promises of Scripture, and God, I just want to pray this morning, uh, this afternoon, as we consider some more of your promises in Scripture. That you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us now. Uh, that you would guide the words that I say and that you would tailor make each of them to fit the unique circumstances of each person in this building as only your spirit can do. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you now. We pray that you would lead and guide us in Jesus name. Amen. All right. I want to start uh, my message off by a quick question, and it's going to involve a little bit of audience participation. So I want to it's going to I'll just ask the question. You can just call it out. Um, I want to ask the question, what do you think would have been the most exciting period to live in in Bible history and why? So anyone who's got a favorite or a time period in Bible history that you think would have been the most exciting to live in and why? Yes. Eden. Eden. Yeah, okay. To see, uh, to see the, you know, all of the beautiful creation that God created, that would have been awesome. Anyone else? A favorite? The birth of Jesus. Birth of Jesus. Wow. Wow. That would have been exciting to see. And even the ministry of Jesus, to see firsthand Him preach and share the parables that we have hold so dearly in Scripture. Yes, anyone else? The most exciting time to live in Bible history and why? The parting of the Red Sea. Wouldn't that have been incredible? To see God perform such a miracle. That would have been an incredible wi- uh, miracle to witness. Anyone else? Wow, wouldn't that have been an incredible experience to be a part of, to witness? Um, Yes, certainly. Just to see people being converted and seeing the message uh, have an impact in people's lives. That would have been an incredible time period to be a part of. Anyone else? Maybe we'll take one more. Resurrection morning. morning. Wouldn't that have been exciting to see, you know, to see Jesus again um, and to see that uh, that all of the promises that he had promised were coming true. Wow, wouldn't that have been an exciting time to be alive and to be a part of God's church? Well, I want to I suggest to you this morning that if I was to answer that question for myself personally today, I would answer today. I would answer now. And that might seem like a bit of an unusual response, but I believe that now is an exciting and prophetically significant time to be committed to the life of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And, um, and I think that um, Scripture promises us The reason that I, I believe that now For me, my response would be now Is because He has promised Scripture promises us That in our very near future God's people will experience The greatest revival that has happened Throughout Christian history Wow, that to me Seems like a very exciting time To be alive And so I would answer today um, Scripture highlights a couple of things for us, and I want to take us through some passages. Um, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, script, uh, we, we see this prophecy of this great revival that's going to take place. And Revelation describes it in this way. It says, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory, and cried with a loud voice. So this revival will, ha- will come with great power. And the whole earth... Will be lightened with its glory, with His glory, as a result of this revival. It will be a worldwide revival. The effects of this revival will be felt worldwide, and so much so that this message and this revival experience will be is described in Revelation here as a loud voice. It has it's heard across the country, across the nations, across the globe. Joel, when he uh, in, in the book of Joel, uh, speaking of this same event. Uh, Joel prophetically says the following. In in chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, we read, It will come to pass afterwards in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Um, These are... um, apocalyptic language and terms that have been described here, referencing for us that this is taking place right in the end, end time. Um, and it will come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. What an experience this will be. God's Spirit will be poured out on His people in, in the effect that is described in this verse. What an incredible experience that's going to be. Uh, one of my favorite books, The Great Controversy, converted me and changed my life when I read it for the first time um, as a first-year university student. Um, it was the first time I'd ever picked up a book of Ellen so I read through it, and I, I was convicted on our message. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from this book, The Great Controversy, we read that before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival that has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Are you excited? Do you, do you want to experience this sort of a revival? Do you want to receive the blessings that come as a result of God's Spirit being poured out um, in this portion? Well, today I want to tell you not to look forward to obtain it, but to look backwards. Our message this morning is entitled The History of the Future. And I think that as we look back to the Apostolic Church, we can learn lessons from their experience that served to prepare them to receive the outpouring of the Pentecost. Um, and it prepared them and equipped them to have this a revival experience that they experienced um, and, and will, will, will serve to better prepare us to have this experience as well. I was interested when I asked that question earlier on, what would be the most exciting period um, in Bible history that you'd like to be alive in and, and why? I noticed that no one actually mentioned the, um, the early church. Uh, that would have been quite an exciting time to be alive, wouldn't it? To see the miracles taking place, um, to see the rapid growth and expansion of the, the church. That would have been an exciting time to be alive. Well we see in Scripture, we see prophesied that a revival in our very near future is about to take place that is in proportion to that sort of uh, revival and, um, and the outpouring of God's Spirit that took place at Pentecost. Wow. That's exciting. I think now is a very exciting time to be alive um, and committed to our church. And so I want to suggest to you four characteristics of the apostolic church, four characteristics of the early church that will serve to prepare us to receive this revival experience that we're very much looking forward to. And uh, and the first one that I'd like to look at with you this, this afternoon is the idea that the apostolic church loved Jesus more than they loved their own lives. I believe that love is the greatest motivator in the universe. Um, It was love that caused Jacob to work seven, or really 14 years uh, for Rachel, but he was able to say that those long years just felt like a few days because of his great love for her. It's love that turns the Christian experience from a must-do, have-to-do obligation to a get-to-do, want-to-do service of love. And this is the experience that, this is the motivator that allows us to serve God faithfully uh, with, with um, a, a service of joy. It's no wonder then that Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with God with all your heart, uh, because this loving, this love is the motivator that allows us to serve uh, out of a, a willingness and not out of obligation. And so what a, what a powerful uh, concept for this early church to grapple with and to hold on to. Um, we see in John chapter 15 that greater love, what does love look like? Well, greater love has, um, has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus modeled what love would look like by laying down his life for us. By laying down his life for the disciples, for the apostolic church. And in doing so, I think this is the reason why the apostolic church were able to love Jesus more than their own lives. Because Jesus had modeled to them what that would look like. He had modeled to them what, it, what real love looked like. And so the apostolic church was having a good example to follow. They were able to love Jesus more than they loved their own lives. And so I want to turn to a passage of Scripture with you as we consider the apostolic church and how they put specifically this practice of loving God more than their own lives into practice. So we're in the book of Acts. We're going to start in Acts chapter 5. And I'll pick up the story partway through here, but I'll give you a little bit of context to start us off. When Jesus gave the gospel commission to the disciples, He told them to go preach the gospel. And sure enough, this is what they did when Jesus left. And they went about preaching the gospel. Now, this was whenever the gospel is preached, it has a mixed response. Uh, every person has the free will to determine whether, how they will respond to this gospel message. And so as the disciples went and preached, as the early church went and preached, We see throughout Scripture, throughout the book of Acts, that it was received in different ways by different hearers. And um, in this occasion, in Acts chapter 5, we see the apostles preaching the good news of Jesus, preaching the gospel. And the religious rulers of the time were not happy about this. The Jewish rulers didn't appreciate that they were preaching about Jesus. And so they put them in prison and commanded them to stop preaching. But miraculously, in the story we're about to consider, an angel of heaven is sent to free the apostles from this prison and sells them to go preach in the marketplace. And they, So they go out and they preach in the marketplace. And the next morning, as the, uh, the religious rulers come to take them out of prison, they don't find them there. And they find them preaching in the marketplace. And this is where we're going to pick the story up. In Acts chapter 5, verse 25, we'll read... Says, then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you have filled all of Jerusalem with your doctrine and to intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. We see the response that the apostles had this opposition of their message is that they were going to follow what God had asked them to do rather than capitulate to the demands of men who were calling them to do something, uh, to to stop preaching, which God had, had commanded them to do. And so we see as the story goes on, the religious rulers try to understand how to handle this situation and they receive the advice of one named Gamaliel who says look, let this go. If it's of God, we're not going to stop it. But if it's not of God, it'll just peter out and fall away like so many other movements before have. And so let's just let this, let's let this one play out and see how it happens. Uh, and so we pick the story up in verse 40, and 40, uh, 40 to 42. Um, and we see that they say, To him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus. If you were brought to trial for preaching Jesus, would there be any evidence to convict you? These men, these apostles were preaching the good news of Jesus. And when they received opposition, which they received a lot of, when they received opposition, when their lives were at risk, even when the the livelihood of their future was at stake, they said that they were counted it all joy to suffer for His name's sake. They were willing to take any cost as long as they put Christ first and did what He had commanded them to do. What an example to follow. What a, how they loved Jesus more than their own lives. How they were willing to put themselves aside in order to fulfill the mission that Christ had commanded them to do. Uh, I think that this is a very uh, important characteristic of the early church that we can learn from today and that we can put into practice into our lives. Um, if we believe Scripture, then we in our own lives may be required to lay down our lives for Christ's sake. Certainly many people around the world are already being called to do that. Would we be willing to lay down our lives for Christ's sake? Is, is Christ more important to us than even our own lives? Well, there's one way to answer that question, and it's whether, there's it one way to know whether you'd be willing to lay down your life for Him, it's whether you're willing to live for Him today. Um, All throughout Scripture, we see that God's faithful people have loved not their lives even unto death. They have put Christ above all. And the question that we need to consider today, do we love Christ more than our own lives? Are we willing to uh, take on the same sort of behavior patterns that the early church did and put Christ before our own lives? I think this is an important characteristic for us to consider today, an important characteristic of the early church that prepared and equipped them to receive the Holy Spirit and to and experience such great revival in their midst. Um, the second characteristic, oh, I will share this before we move on, um, in Acts of the Apostles, page 36, we read that um, as the... Apostles meditated on Christ's pure, holy life. They felt that no toil would be too hard, no sacrifice too great, if only they could bear witness in their lives to the loveliness of Christ's character. However, um, so if, if we truly comprehend what Christ has done for us on the cross, if we actually understand what He has done for us, then the only response that we can have is to give our lives completely and fully back to Him. And this is exactly what the apostles experienced. As they meditated on Christ's pure and holy life. No cost was too high. No cost. They considered it... They, they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake, verse 41. It led Paul to be able to say in Acts 20, verse 22, that he considered his life worth nothing to him. His only aim was to finish the race... Complete the task that the Lord Jesus has set before him. The task of testifying the good news of God's grace. Do we love Christ more than we love our own lives? Uh, I think that's an important consideration to to consider today. The second characteristic of the early church that I'd like to consider um, that uh, prepared the early church to receive this revival experience and to be so effective in their, in their mission is that they understood their prophetic identity and they embraced their mission publicly. In Acts chapter 2, let's turn to there in Scripture, back a few chapters where we have been at. In Acts chapter 2, we see a situation here uh, where when the disciples received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Uh, They received the biblical gift of tongues and they went out to preach. And as they preached, uh, as Peter preached, uh, he he was able to be understood by the multitudes of different nations who were around him in their own tongue, in their own native language. And as this took place he received a significant amount of criticism from some in the crowd who accused him uh, or accused the disciples, the apostles, of being drunk. And so we're going to pick the story up here, but I, wanna note, I want us to note something very important here. Um, in response to this criticism, Peter had a specific response. And let's have a look at it now. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we read But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Men of Judea, and all that, and ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Job. And he goes on to quote the passage of Scripture that we. Referred to just a little bit earlier on, um, he quoted the passage of scripture there, and so what we see in answer to the accusation that he was having, uh, Peter showed that this demonstration of the Holy Spirit working was in fact in fulfilment of prophecy. Under the inspiration, uh, under inspiration, he identified that this prophecy of Joel, which was speaking of the outpouring of God's Spirit in the last days, also applied. Uh, to the experience of the Pentecost in part. And so he saw where he sat in prophecy and was able to identify uh, or explain what was taking place because he understood where he sat in prophecy. Um, this was then He was then able to respond to criticism and to move forward in his mission because he was able to, he knew where he sat. He knew that what was taking place—the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost—was a prophesied event, and that what was taking place before their eyes uh, was supposed to happen. He understood where he sat in prophecy. Um, this uh, this concept that we see here is the concept of the former and the latter reign. Um, this is a concept in scripture that we see multiple times or many times throughout scripture where we see the, uh, the Hebrew agricultural system operated uh, around the rain cycle. Uh, unlike many other nations, most major nations would build their cities around a major water source, Egypt around the Nile, etc. Because water was so crucial to the survival of the nations. But the, Hebrew, the Hebrews were a nomadic tribe. They traveled around. And so they couldn't rely on, a, on one sole water source. And so they had to rely on God to provide the rain in due season to, for their crops to grow in order to be able to survive. And so what took place is that in the, uh, in the autumn months, in the fall, there would be an, a, a rain that would come to prepare the, uh, the crops to be able to grow across the winter months. Um, the, the former rain, as it was or the early rain, as it was referred to, and then in the spring months, an, uh, the latter rain would would come to prepare the crop for harvest and this concept, a very physical agricultural concept, had spiritual application as well that God provided the outpouring of his spirit in due season as it was needed and so Peter here identified that this prophecy of the outpouring of God's Spirit in the last days that we are looking forward to in our very near future was the, the latter rain experience and the former rain experience or the early rain he identified as his, his own time, the, the, the Pentecost pouring out. Peter was able to see where he sat in prophecy. He understood his prophetic identity and this gave him uh, a, a way forward. In Great Controversy, page 61, we see that the work will be similar to that of the day of Pentecost as the former rain was given in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the opening of the gospel to cause the upspringing of the precious seed. So the latter rain will be given at its close for the ripening of the harvest. This is the promise of Scripture. This is what we look forward to and uh, and claim God's promises. This is, this is what we are claiming today as we consider uh, this this beautiful promise of Scripture. There's another place where the apostolic church finds its prophetic identity. And that's in the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And uh, this prophetic passage guided the ministry of the early church. I won't spend a lot of time unpacking this, uh, but very briefly... Um, In Daniel chapter 9, we see a prophecy that's given that runs from 457 BC all the way through to 34 AD. And it's a time period that's given, a period of probation for the Jewish people. They had been given a job, a task to be the light to the Gentiles, to share the good news of God to the surrounding nations who hadn't experienced or didn't know of God. But time and time again, the Jewish nation failed to live up to the job that they had been given. And so they were given a period of probation, a period of 490 years that ran from 457 through to to 34 AD. And if they didn't, uh, during this time of probation, step up to actually do what they had been raised to do, then that job would be given to someone else. And so we see that this prophecy in, in Daniel chapter 9 predicts specifically the date that Jesus would be baptized, that he would be crucified, and that Stephen would be stoned. And so what took place is that uh, right at the end, uh, when Jesus was the, the Jewish nation demonstrated very clearly that they weren't interested in fulfilling the job that they'd been required to do, they crucified Jesus in 31 AD and said, let his blood be upon us. And then, in 34 AD, as the gospel was going, the early church was taking the gospel to the world. They uh, they stoned the first Christian martyr, sealing their fate and identifying the fact that they weren't willing to do the job they'd been tasked to be given. And so, the, at that point, the the Jewish nation was no longer the chosen nation of God to do that work, but the gospel went to the Gentiles. Now, do we see in the, early, in the early church, the history of the early church, the church going and ministering to the Gentile communities? We certainly do. In, all throughout the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, we see the, uh, Cornelius receiving uh, ministry from Peter. We see the um, Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 as they discussed how to minister to the Gentile communities. Uh, we see that Paul was in fact the evangelist to the Gentile communities. And so the early church saw and understood that their special role, their special task was to take a message to the Gentiles. They recognized where they fit in prophecy. They saw that from 34 onwards there was a different work to do. And they rose and this by understanding their prophetic identity they were able to direct their mission. They, know, they knew what they should be doing. Well, I want to suggest today that we need to understand our prophetic identity in order to embrace our mission publicly as well. We have a beautiful message. The, Adventist, the, the message that the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes and teaches is a special message. Every other Christian denomination prepares people to die in Christ and to be raised up when that trumpet sounds at the first resurrection. To be among the dead in Christ who are raised. But the Adventist church has been given a special message, a different message to prepare people not to die in Christ and be raised at that trumpet but to prepare people to be translated. To prepare people to see Christ and be caught up into the air. It's a very different and unique message that our church has been called to teach. And in order to embrace our mission, we need to understand our prophetic identity. We need to understand where we fit in Bible prophecy, so that it can guide our mission in moving forward, we have a beautiful message. If you haven't had the opportunity to study Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 10, and understand uh, that the Advent, the Advent movement is specifically identified in Scripture, it's prophesied. That's a that's a privilege. We can see ourselves in Scripture. If you hadn't had haven't had the opportunity to study Revelation 14 and see our unique message then I think this is a point that we need to consider today. We need to understand our prophetic identity so that it can guide and direct exactly what we should be doing and why we should be doing it. We need to understand our prophetic identity in order to embrace our mission publicly, just like the early church was able to do. The third characteristic that I'd like us to consider today uh, that equipped and prepared the apostolic church to receive this revival experience and that can be a blessing to us today as well, is that the apostolic church based their entire lives upon the Word of God. Let's turn, uh, we're in Acts chapter 2, so we're going to just have a look now at the uh, final parts of this chapter. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the results of Peter preaching, the results of the early church moving forward in their mission, is that thousands were added to their number. And in verse 41, we read that they gladly received his word and were baptized. And in the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, notice what the early church did in verse 42. Let's notice what the early church looked like. How did they move forward? Well, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. The early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is the teachings of Scripture. Doctrine is the Word of God as, we under, uh, as, as is taught in Scripture. Don't, uh, the, the early church based their entire lives on the Word of God, on this doctrine. Don't let anybody uh, make doctrine be a dirty word for you. Some, in some circles, uh, the, the idea or the concept of doctrine is seen as a negative thing as seen as onerous and and burdensome and old and stagnant. But we see that the apostolic church based their entire lives on this doctrine, on these teachings of the Word of God. There's nothing to be afraid in doctrine. It's simply the teachings of Scripture. And so this is one of the characteristics that we see in the early church. They they base their entire lives on the Word of God. Notice that Paul, when he was instructing Timothy... Uh, confirmed this. It says, Preach the word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2-4. to Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the word. The apostolic church based their entire lives on the word of God. This was the thing. This was the book that guided and directed their lives. Preach the word, he said. Uh, Paul, as he taught. For the time will come When people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Friends, I want to suggest today that this time has fully come. We see all around teachers being heaped up to just satisfy what we want to hear and are turning away from the clear teachings of Scripture the apostolic church based their entire lives upon the word of God and I want to suggest to you today that we need to do the same it is never safe to allow culture to drive truth it's never safe to allow culture to drive truth we're living in a culture and a society that is becoming increasingly out of step with Christian values and so why would we let the culture that is around us dictate to us what is right and what is wrong As we, if we fall into this trap of trying to appease and be culture, uh, be, adopt what is popular in culture, all we do is neuter the message of the God's word. All we do is limit our effectiveness in calling lost souls to the high standard of God's word. And this is never safe to do. If you allow, if you spend more time being influenced by the news or media or the opinions of those around you that are unsanctified or that are, that are not concerned with what God's word says, if you spend more time being influenced by this than you do by God's word, then you will be influenced by culture. By beholding, we become changed. What we spend our time considering and putting ourselves around is what influences us. And so I want to challenge you. I want to to suggest that we need to have more from God's Word influencing us than we do from what culture around us is. And as we do that, we can protect ourselves from these ideas in culture that are inconsistent with God's Word. It's never safe to allow culture to drive truth. How do we know that? Because Scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We think that we know what's best for us. We think that you know you know God might say that, but I think I know what's best for me here and i 'm going to do what I think is what's best for me, but you know what you don 't know what's best for you. God knows what's best for you as your creator, and even if you think you know what's best for you, God knows better and so if he says something in his word that you don't agree with or you don't think is best for you, well God knows better than you don't try to follow your own heart because your heart is deceitful you can't trust your own heart you can trust God's word one of my favorite passages in proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 says trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding don't lean on your own understanding don't trust yourself in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths in fact in proverbs chapter 28 verse 26 it says that the person who trusts in his own heart is actually a fool There's no safety in trusting your own heart. There's no safety in trusting what, in allowing the culture around you to drive your perception of what is true. This is dangerous territory and we need to guard against it. When you and God disagree, I want to suggest to you today that you need to surrender your heart. You need to surrender and allow God's word to be supreme in your life, even if you don't understand it. Even if you think you know better. Even if you disagree, you need to surrender your heart. Most of the time, people are in darkness, not because they are in ignorance, but because they don't do what they know. When God reveals light to you in his word, the only safe course is to move forward in putting that light into practice in your life. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day that you need to respond to the light that God has given you. And as you, as you, uh, respond to the light that He's given you. You demonstrate to God that He can reveal more light to you. If, you, if He's revealing light to you and you're, you're, you know, maybe He's given you a conviction on something and you're, you're putting that off to a more opportune time or um, you, know, you don't follow that light that God has given you, then you're demonstrating why would God continue to give you more light when you're not even putting into practice the light that He's given you already. We need to put into practice the light that God has given us. Most of the time people are in darkness not because of ignorance but because they don't do what they know. In fact, Desire of Ages, page 489 and 490 says that our condemnation in the judgment does not exalt from the fact that we've been in error but from the fact that we have neglected heaven-sent opportunities for learning what is truth. It's not a crime to not know something. That, there's, many of us don't know things. God's revealing to us to help us to learn and to know. God's not going to hold hold you accountable for things that you don't know. He's providing opportunity for you to learn. But if He sends you an opportunity for learning what is truth and you decide not to accept that and to walk away from it, that is the sort of attitude that will result in, in our condemnation in the judgment. This is the attitude of turning away from Christ and saying, I'm not interested in what you have to say. I'm going to pursue my own course, my own action. The only safe course when God reveals light to us is to walk in it. Obedience is not why God blesses us, it's how He blesses us. As we walk in the light that God has given us, we will be blessed. Not because of our obedience, not because we've done things, but because in every commandment of God is a blessing. Every commandment that He gives us, everything that He tells us to do is for our best interest. Everything that He has commanded us to do guards us against some sort of pain and destruction in our lives. And so as we do what He has asked us to do, all we do is protect ourselves from the attacks and the the discouragement in our lives that would come as a result of breaking His law. As we obey Him, we, uh, we are blessed. It's how He blesses us. I want to give you a couple of concepts here as we consider this concept of the early church basing their entire lives on the Word of God. It's not, uh, it's not safe or it's, it's not good enough for us to, just to rely on scholars or other spiritual leaders to give us our understanding of truth either because uh, we need to have our own personal understanding of, of what truth is. In fact, we read in Testimonies, Volume 5, that the Bible, with its precious gems of truth, was not written for the scholar alone. On the contrary, it was designed for the common people. And the interpretation given by the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. The target audience of Scripture is the common person. It's you and I. And scholars... We can't just rely on scholars and to give us our concept of truth. You know, when you look at all of the scholars that exist in the world today, 95% of them don't understand the Sabbath. They haven't seen the Sabbath in Scripture. And there's many other doctrines and teachings of Scripture that are hidden. We can't rely on just some sort of other expert in the field to give us our concept of what is truth. We need to have our own personal understanding, our own commitment to studying God's Word, to understand what truth is. And that is the safe course. That is the course that we all need to take. This is the course that the Bereans took and that the early church modelled. Let's look. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, uh, the Bereans are noted as being more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the message that Paul preached them with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. There's no problem with having a preacher. It's a blessing to be here and um, learn off some of these powerful men of God who have presented already, and, and women as well. Um, it's a blessing to have truths being expounded to us by others. But this doesn't take the place of testing to see if what is being said is consistent with Scripture. It's... It's, it's the only safe course when we receive new information, when we receive new light, is not to immediately gobble it up and accept everything that's said. And it's not to immediately reject it and say, no, that's not for me, I'm not interested in that. But it's to test it against Scripture to see if it's true. Test it. This is the safe course. So many of us are prone to just, when a new teacher, when we encounter something new, we just write it off. Nut nah, that doesn't fit in with what I know, so I'm not... Nah. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to hear it. Well, that's not what we're called to do. That's not the biblical model of testing truth. You need to test every new thing that you hear against Scripture to see if it's true. And the other thing that you shouldn't be doing is just accepting everything that's said. How many of us... That's the extent of where we understand what's true. If Doug Batchelor said it, I believe it. I believe Doug Batchelor's the man. But, But this is not... This is no, this, Just because a, a, a man teaches something that's consistent with Scripture doesn't take away our biblical mandate to test every te- teaching against the Word. And this is what we're called to do. This is what the early church did. They based everything that they did on God's Word. And we see this being put into practice in the early church right here. To reject truth in God's Word is to reject Jesus Himself because Jesus is the Word that was made flesh. When you just reject an idea because you don't want to study it or you don't want to hear or you haven't heard it before, you're not rejecting a biblical teaching. You're rejecting Jesus Himself as well as a biblical teaching. We see this in Luke chapter ten, verse sixteen, when Jesus sent the disciples out. He said that uh, again. We see the a mixed response by people who received the, the gospel being preached. Jesus said to them that those who hear you hear me, and if they reject you they actually reject me. And if they reject me, they reject the one that sent me. As we reject truths in God's word, we are rejecting Jesus himself. And so this is not a situation that we want to find ourselves in. The early church based everything that they did on the word of God. And I think that today we need to do the same. We need to base everything that we do on the word of God And we need to adopt a love for God's Word and a passion for spending time in God's Word because this is our only safeguard, God's Word. The fourth thing that the apostolic church did, uh, or a characteristic of the apostolic church that prepared them to receive this revival experience is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit because they were serious about having Him. They were serious about having the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to the book of Acts. Uh, we're getting, look, actually, we're already in Acts chapter 2, so let's just go straight to verse 1 to 4 here. Uh, and we see here, let's read, And that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with one another in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The necessary power for fulfilling God's plan is the Holy Spirit. The apostolic church came together in earnest and sought the Holy Spirit. They prayed for the Holy Spirit. They claimed God's promise that He would send the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said to them, I'll send you the comforter. They waited and they prayed and they claimed His promise and they earnestly sought in one accord, the Holy Spirit. This is the power that we need to fulfill God's plans in our lives. In fact, the verse that we considered earlier on, as we looked at this revival that's about to take place in our near future, it said that after these things, this message came down from heaven having great power. Where does power come from in a believer's life? Power comes from the Holy Spirit. The power of God is seen in the Holy Spirit. We see this in the early church. When they received... uh, Jesus said to them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The believer receives power in their lives as the Holy Spirit comes into their lives and gives them power to move forward. This... Holy Spirit is the the necessary power that we need in order to fulfill God's plans. To make God your number one priority, I want to suggest today that we need to invest more time, money, and energy into Him and His cause. The early church were earnest and serious about having the Holy Spirit, and so it was their number one priority. How... You know, if you know, many of us here today would say that God is our number one priority, it's act, it rolls off the, the lips quite nicely. It's, it's, it feels good to say, um, "God is our number one priority." But you know how I can d- determine what your priorities are? If you give me your bank statements and your um, calendar, I would be able to tell you pretty quickly what your top priorities are. The way that you spend your money and the way that you spend your time will communicate to me. What you value in your life. How many of us, if we considered the way we spend our time, money, and energies, would still say that God is our number one priority? If God is our number one priority, then we need to invest more time and more money and more energy into Him and His cause than we do into other things, anything else. This is what the early church did. God was their number one priority. They earnestly sought the Holy Spirit in all that they did. Have you ever noticed that if something's important to you, you'll find a way? But if something isn't important to you, you'll find an excuse. This this has been certainly true in my life. If God is your number one priority, you will find a way to find time for Him. If you love someone and are constantly trying to find an excuse to spend time with them, then maybe you need to reassess your idea of what love is. If something isn't important to you, you'll be able to find an excuse. But if something is important to you, you'll be able to find a way. This is what the early church did. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we're going to bring this to a close. We see in Scripture the commandment to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is our priority orders set by God himself. In Testimonies of the Church, volume uh, 7, page 33, we see that all the apostles did, every church member today is to do. We've looked at four lessons, just four lessons of the early church. We've seen some of the ways that they, uh, some of these characteristics that they had. And today, every member, every one of us, is to put into practice these things that the early church practiced. And as we do these things, I believe that we will be well prepared to move forward um, in receiving this revival experience. Great Controversy, page 611. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of power of God than marked its opening. The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former reign at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain at its close this is going to be the greatest revival in Christian history. And as we look back, in order to receive this latter rain experience, we need to have this former rain, early rain experience as well. As we look back to the early church and see what they did, we can learn lessons to prepare us to receive the latter rain experience. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and the most urgent of our needs. To seek this should be our first work. There must be earnest effort To obtain the blessing of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us His blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. The early church understood and put into practice this concept. They earnestly sought the Holy Spirit, and they were serious about having Him. We've looked at four characteristics of the early church. We saw that the early church loved Jesus more than they loved their own lives. I want to provide an opportunity for you to respond this afternoon to the message that we've just heard. Maybe as you've considered this characteristic number one of the early church, um, Maybe you felt convicted that you don't love Christ more than your own life. Maybe you felt convicted that, in fact, you love your own life more than you love Christ. Maybe today you need to make the decision to ask God to help you to put Him first and make Him the most important thing in your life. The second characteristic that we looked at in the early church is that they understood their prophetic identity and they braced their mission publicly. Maybe you haven't had the privilege to study the prophetic identity of the Adventist church. Maybe you never understood or had time to study Revelation 10 and 14 and other passages of Scripture that help us to see ourselves in Scripture and understand what our unique message and purpose is for this day and time. If you haven't had that opportunity, maybe you've been convicted today that in the same way that the early church understood where they sat in prophecy, you too want to know where you sit in prophecy so that you can be more directed in moving forward in your mission. And you felt convicted today that you want to study our message. Maybe the third characteristic of the early church has convicted you. We've seen that the early church based their entire lives on the Word of God. Maybe you have a cherished opinion, a cherished idea that's popular in culture that God's Word speaks against, but you haven't accepted what God's Word has said on the topic because it's, it's not popular. Maybe you need to, to give up this idea and you need to base your whole life on the Word of God. Maybe you're prone to accept what other people say about God's Word in substitute of your own experience in God's Word. And God is calling you today to have your personal experience in God's Word and to test everything against Scripture. Or The fourth characteristic of the early church as they earnestly sought God's Spirit. Maybe today you felt convicted that you need to more seriously seek the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. You need to reorientate the way that you spend your time, money and energies. And you need to make God your number one priority. Earnestly seek Him, not only in word, but in action and in deed. These are some some big characteristics, challenging characteristics of the early church that we're being called to put into practice today. Um, If you want to say, I don't know which one of these points you need to respond to. Maybe it's one, two, three, or even four. Uh, But if you want to say before God and before our brothers and sisters here that this week you want to take steps to put one of these characteristics into practice in your life, or two, or three, or four. If you want to say today, that you want to put these characteristics into practice in your life to prepare you to receive this revival experience of true godliness, then I want to invite you to raise your hand. Praise God. Praise God. I think um, that this is the sort of uh, response that God loves to help us with. As we move forward in putting into practice these characteristics, characteristics in our lives. God is with us and will help us and work alongside us to achieve these things. I pray that you've been blessed. Um, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for uh, the opportunity that we've had to consider this afternoon, these characteristics of the early church. Uh, we thank you uh, for your word and the great role that it played in throughout uh, in the early church and that it can play in our own lives as well. God, we sense our desperate need of your Holy Spirit at this time in earth's history. And I pray that you would uh, you would be with us. You, you would send your Spirit to, to be with us each day. Uh, we pray for our church. We pray for our leaders. We pray for uh, everyone. There's such a great need of your Spirit, and we, we recognize that this afternoon. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we are humble people. Uh, we, we need your help. And so for all the commitments that were made today, I pray that your Spirit would seal these commitments and would, uh, through the Holy Spirit's presence in their life, would give each of these individuals power to put these characteristics into practice this week. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This message was
2: made available by the Waitara Seventh day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au.
0: This is Kristen Getty
1: singing Holy Spirit, living breath of God. Christ before me. Christ beside me and Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me and Christ above me. Christ in quiet and Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind unto myself the name the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three, by whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the Lord of my salvation, salvation is of Christ the Lord. saying Amen. it's been a pleasure
0: bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio